You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Ruth Reichel. This program originally aired in 2009. Hi, these are some very bright lights. (laughs) I'm very happy to be here in New Hampshire, one of my very favorite states. Um, I thought I would begin by just telling you a little bit about how this book came into being. When I was a child, I liked to tell stories about my mother. They were called mim tales, and my friends were always saying, tell us another mim tale, tell us another mim tale. So I thought I would would read you one of the mim tales. This is a true story. Imagine a New York City apartment at six in the morning. It's a modest apartment in Greenwich Village. Coffee is bubbling in an electric percolator. On the table is a basket of rye bread, an entire coffee cake, a few cheeses, a platter of cold cuts. My mother has been making breakfast, a major meal in our house, one where we sit down to fresh orange juice every morning, clink our glasses as if they held wine, and toast each other with, cheerio, have a nice day. Right now, she's the only one awake, but she's getting impatient for the day to begin, and she cranks WQXR up a little louder on the radio, hoping that the noise will rouse everyone. But Dad and I are good sleepers, and when the sounds of martial music have no effect, she barges into the bedroom and shakes my father awake. Darling, she says, I need you. Get up and come into the kitchen. My father, a sweet and accommodating person, shuffles sleepily down the hall. He's wearing loose pajamas, and the strand of hair he combs over his bald spot stands straight up. He leans against the sink, holding on to it a little, and obediently opens his mouth when my mother says, Try this. Later, when he told the story, he attempted to convey the awfulness of what she had given him. The first time he said that it tasted like cat toes and rotted barley, But over the years, the descriptions got better. Two years later, it had turned into pig snouts and mud. And five years later, he had refined the flavor into a mixture of antique anchovies and moldy chocolate. Whatever it tasted like, he said it was the worst thing he had ever had in his mouth. So terrible that it was impossible to swallow. So terrible that he leaned over, spit it into the sink, and then grabbed the coffee pot put the spout into his mouth, and tried to eradicate the flavor. My mother stood there watching all this. When my father finally put the coffee pot down, she smiled and said, "Mm -hmm. just as I thought, spoiled. And here's another little mim tale. What now, my father asked when he arrived home one day to find a tree being hauled up the side of our apartment building. He knew right away that it was destined for the 11th floor. Sure enough, my mother greeted him with the news that she had just purchased a dead birch tree to brighten up our home. Isn't it wonderful, she asked breathlessly, showing off an object that was at least twice as big as the available space. We can cut it down to size and hang seasonal ornaments on it. Wonderful, he agreed, with the appropriate mixture of pride and skepticism. And such a bargain, she said. Dad wisely refrained from asking how much. 
They were always bargains, these things my mother dragged home from her peregrinations around New York City, or curiosities. Whenever my mother came upon some new food she had never seen before, she bought it. This meant that I was the first person in my class to taste mussels, cactus fruit, sea urchins, and lychee nuts. Mom was also a master of thinking up new uses for familiar foods. Once, when I was driving back to college, she handed me a can of white asparagus, saying, Take these for the road. You won't have to stop as often. They're very thirst-quenching. So I put all these stories into my first book, Tender at the Bone. And later, when people asked me, Did you always know you were funny? My response was, I'm not funny. I don't think it ever really hit me that these mim tales were funny. They were just mom. The book did well, but after it was published, I had this uneasy feeling. I hadn't really meant to make fun of my mother in public, and I kind of thought I owed her something. And I thought maybe I should make it up to her by writing the book that she had always wanted to write. My mother had always wanted to write about her illness. She had wanted to put down on paper what it felt like to be a manic depressive. She had notes and she talked a lot about this project. But of course, the very fact that she had the illness meant that she was destined never to write the book because she was incapable of finishing any project. And now I thought that maybe I would write this book for her. And I began doing research on bipolar disease. But while I was doing that, it came time for me to read the audio version of the book. And reading an audio book is one of the most extraordinary moments for a writer. Uh, this one was read at Carnegie Hall. And so I'm in a legendary building. And I go into this booth. And you were there for days with three people hanging on your every word. And it's really sort of thrilling. And they had, they had figured that it would take five days to read this book, and it actually went very quickly. And at the end of three days and a couple of hours, I read the end. And these three people all looked up at me and said, that's it? You're going to leave us here on the bridge? We're not going to find out what happens next. And they made me, I was still the restaurant critic of the New York Times, so they made me take them out for lunch and tell them the rest of the story. And when I was done, they said, well, you have to write this all down. This is a great story. So instead of writing my mother's book, I wrote Comfort Me With Apples. And then I wrote another book of my own, and the years were going by, and my mother's book is getting pushed farther and farther into the background. And I had pretty much forgotten about the whole notion of doing this book um, when I got an award last year. And they sent me a little disc. You know, we, this is, you have to give a speech, a thank you speech. There will be um, a number of women getting this award, and here are a few of the you know, what we think have been the good speeches over the years. And um, I kept thinking, oh, God, I've got to write this speech. And um, anyway, finally, I, I sat down and I thought, OK, today is the day I'm going to write this speech. And um, I look at the date and I realize that the speech is going to be on what would have been my mother's 100th birthday. 
And I wrote, today it would be my mother's 100th birthday. And then this thing that happens sometimes, if you're lucky as a writer, happened to me. And I went away. And I had no idea what I was writing. But I got done and I looked at it and I thought, oh, this is pretty good. Um, and I didn't think about it again. And suddenly the day of this, this award ceremony comes and I'm up on this dais with um, all of these other women and they're all getting up and giving these speeches that, you know, say, I, I want to thank my mother who's made me everything I am. And I look down at what I've written and I suddenly have this sinking feeling that um, this may not be the right speech. Um, but it was too late for me to do anything about it. So I sort of took a deep breath and I started. And the speech begins, I, I've been thinking about my mother and all the ways she made me into the person that I am. She didn't do it in any of the ordinary ways. She wasn't a great writer or a great businesswoman, or even if truth be told, a particularly good mother. I think she tried to be a good wife, but she wasn't much at keeping house, and I don't think I've ever met anyone who was a worse cook. But my mother was a great example of everything I didn't want to be, and to this day, I wake up every morning grateful that I'm not her. And. And as I said that, I mean, there were 1,500 people at the Waldorf Astoria, and there was a sort of collective <gasps> gasp. And a friend of mine who was in the audience said, oh, my God, I had no idea where you were going with that one. <laughs> but then I went on to talk about how um, I think that my mother and all of the women of her generation were born at a particularly bad time to have been born a middle-class American woman. And I talked about my mother's life and how she had desperately wanted to be a doctor, but that her parents had said to her, you're no beauty and it's too bad you're such an intellectual, but if you become a doctor, no man will ever marry you, so give up this idea. And how she went and studied and she got a PhD in music because her family thought it was a suitably ladylike profession. And um, I went on to talk about how my mother and all of her friends were smart, educated, and bored to death. And um, at the end of this speech, there was this kind of stunned silence. <laughs> But when I went back to my seat, Diane von Furstenberg was sitting next to me, and she turned to me, and she had tears in her eyes, and she said, that's my mother you're talking about. And then Christiane Amanpour came up and said the same thing. And then I went into the ladies' room, and there were 10 women, and they were weeping, saying, um, you just talked about my mother's life. And over the next few weeks, I got dozens and dozens of... Um, emails from people I didn't know who had been for this speech saying, you know, that this this was so, this meant so much to me because I suddenly saw my mother's life in your mother's life. And there were some editors in the audience and they all said, you know, you really ought to make this a book. So 
I, I went out and I started, I, my, my idea was that it would be a sort of greatest generation uh, for women. And um, I knew one thing, which was that it was not going to be about my mother, but it was going to be about everybody's mother. And I started doing all of these interviews. And um, I also went to the library and started doing research into um, the women's movement, the suffragettes, and what had happened um, what happened with the passage of the 19th Amendment. And it was not exactly what I had expected. Um, it turns out that within 10 years, of the suffragette Ann Martin was saying that women in politics were, quote, exactly where men political leaders wanted them, bound, gagged, divided, and delivered to the Republican and Democratic parties. And my favorite clipping was one whose headline read, uh, women's suffrage declared a failure. And um, in 1920, um, Anne Howard Shaw said, I'm so, I'm so sorry for you young women who have to carry on the work in the next 10 years, for suffrage was a symbol and you've lost your symbol. There is nothing for women to rally around. And as I was gathering this material, I, I found that this was really true. So I took all of this and I have a little writing cabin and I went into my writing cabin and I started trying to work on this book. And I just didn't quite know where to, what to do with it. And I just struggled and struggled and struggled. And finally it occurred to me that maybe it was time for me to try and find out what my mother's life had been like. And I knew that there was this box of diaries and letters down in the basement. And I decided it was time for me to go down and um, meet this woman. And I have to tell you that it, it was the most difficult writing project I've ever done. Um, the first, the earliest letter in this box was a letter from my grandfather to my mother at 16. He said, um, you're a dear girl and you have a fine mind, but you're going to have to accept the fact that you're homely and finding a husband will not be easy. And I, I thought, well, what made my mother keep this letter all these years? I have to say, I actually went outside and ritually burned it. It made me so angry. <laughs> um and then, you know, there there are, my mother's family was a family that wrote letters to each other, even when they were in the same city. So there was a real wealth of material. And there's also, my mother wrote, um, she didn't keep a diary, but she sort of wrote notes to herself on scraps of paper, which I think of as sort of shouts from the past, where she would just write down her thoughts and... Um, she had a bookstore in the early 20s when she was in her early 20s. And one admirer wrote to her, um, no one around you can be half as strong as you. Your standards of personal values are rare and broad and they are not going to be met by any of us. So go ahead into life, full-blooded, courageous, and leap for the adventure but you must do it soon before the summer of your youth has cooled off into ca into caution. You are magnificently charming and you come like a torrent, but you will be spent on the futility of little things. You are not a watercolor. You are carved out of life 
and there can be no petty hesitancies about you. But what I watched as the years go on is that my mother didn't leap for the adventure, and she was spent on the futility of little things. And I watched her spirit in these years. She just dwindles, and she gets smaller and smaller and more and more scared. And there are amazing letters from um, that she wrote to her psychiatrists, and you, you watch this extraordinary pain. Um, and reading through all of this, I realized, um, I finally saw what I should have known all along, that my mother could tell the story of her generation so much more eloquently than I ever could, and that in the details of her life would be the general observations about her generation. And um, so I spent well all of last summer going through all of these documents and um, chronicling um, the quite extraordinary life that I found there. And what I discovered was that um, this woman who I had written these mim tales about and who I thought was this, you know, funny character was much more self-aware, much more generous than I had any idea. And that beyond that, that she had a real vision of what life could be like for a woman. And she felt very strongly that although her life, she really felt that it had been a terrible failure, but um, that she wanted mine to be different. And that when I wake up in the morning grateful that I'm not my mother, it's no accident. It's because that's exactly what she wanted me to feel. She didn't want me to settle for what she had. And she pushed me in every possible way to have a better life. And um, one of the things that makes me so sad is that I feel that my mother and all of these women of her generation had no idea of what it meant for them to have been these pioneers. Um, there were no rules to guide them. Their mothers who were raised in such different circumstances couldn't show them how to do it. And so the women of my mother's generation were forced to make it all up as they went along. People like mom dared to imagine a world that was entirely different from the one in which they lived. And then they passed that on to us. I think if they'd been complacent about their lives, our lives would have been very different. And I think if they had not had such a deep sense of failure, we would have been willing to accept less. It was their unhappiness that propelled us forward. And so now when I wake up in the morning, grateful not to be my mother, I, I say a little thank you to her um, because I know that what I learned in writing this book is that in that speech I gave, the one that turned into this book, I began by saying that mom was not a particularly good mother. And what I know now is that I was dead wrong. Well, welcome, everyone. It's great to be back for yet another edition of Writers on a New England Stage. And Ruth, it's wonderful to meet you. Wonderful to meet you. I've been hearing your voice for years. <laughs> well, lots of little girls, Ruth, you know, might grow up thinking secretly 
looking at their mothers, I'm never going to be like her. But your mother said it to you. Don't be like me. I'm a failure. I'm ridiculous. I thought that was so sad. You know, I think that we probably don't want anything more than we want our children's respect. And the notion that she loved me enough to try and shelter me by saying that, by making herself ridiculous, it just stuns me. I can't imagine doing that myself. I mean, I can't imagine doing that with my son. But I'm grateful. I'm very grateful. You said that in addition to teaching me not to be like her, she taught me how to be a mother. You just mentioned your son. How did she teach you to be a mother? My mother's relationship with me was very informed by her own relationship with her mother. What I discovered in doing all of this research was that she had been forced to live her mother's dream. And it was she was well into middle age before it hit her that all she had been doing all her life was fulfilling her mother's dreams and that she had never even given one moment of, I mean, she was a dutiful daughter. She studied what her mother wanted her to study. She married man that her mother wanted her to marry. And the way that she mothered me was follow your own dreams, defy me, but what's important is what you want. And I think that very much informed how I treated my son, which is, I mean, I think all you can do as a parent is help your children discover what their best selves are, and then let them be that self. You say that uh, you learned how to cook and how to appreciate good food, being involved in a family where food was, let's just say, not appreciated. (laughs) Well, more than not appreciated. I mean, I think that I turned into a cook and a food person because my mother, my mother was literally taste blind. I mean, that story that I read She wasn't being mean to my... She literally didn't know whether it was spoiled or not. And she needed someone to tell her. So if you grow up in a household like that, you spend a lot of time tasting very carefully. Is this going to kill me? (laughs) Well, there's a story, and I don't want to give away all the Mim stories in the book, but just to let listeners know that there are other Mim stories in the book. But it isn't just that her food tasted bad was sometimes spoiled and could make you sick. Yes. No, I mean, the, the first story in Tender at the Bone is of my mother giving a party for my brother's engagement and putting 26 people in the hospital with food poisoning. <laughs> uh, I mean, she was, she was truly scary. <laughs> <laughs> and there's stories in one of your books about you and your brother becoming real experts at pushing it aside and... You know, pretending you were eating, I mean, much more sophisticated than most of us were. Well, we didn't want to be humiliated by having people dropping lies in front of us. And, you know, my mother wouldn't, she would get very angry if you said, you know, you can't serve that. She'd just say, you know, of course you can. What's nothing wrong with this? So we would just sort of stand in front of the things we didn't think people should eat and <laughs> at parties at your house. Yes. And your mother loved to entertain. That's what's so funny about it. She loved to entertain. And on top of that, my father, who was very loyal, you know, no matter what kind of horrible things she served, and a friend recently told me, I love this story because it's one I hadn't heard before, 
that he remembers the first thing my mother served him was duck and chocolate sauce. And I said, oh, you mean kind of like a mole? He said, no, I mean duck with Hershey's syrup poured over it. So no matter what she served, my father was really polite. And every night he would take her hand and kiss it and thank her for dinner. And he always said very loyally, your mother is a wonderful cook. (laughs) Well, you say again that you learned how to cook defensively, you know, to protect yourself. uh, Absolutely. I mean, at a certain point, you just say, you know, give me that frying pan. I'll cook cook dinner tonight, Mama. (laughs) But is it possible, Ruth, that because your mother had no limits on her cooking, and you talk in the book about, and I won't give it away, but there's another Mim story where she literally throws together anything yes for the brownie troop and it's kind of scary but the brownies eat it but is it possible that because she had no limits on her cooking she just threw together whatever this or that 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 also inspired you as well because cooking is partly about following recipes but it's also about freeing yourself to create it may be i mean certainly my mother had a kind of intellectual curiosity about food i mean at a time when you know americans were eating meatloaf and mashed potatoes and tuna noodle casserole. My mother was, you know, trolling Chinatown and Little Italy and looking for interesting things. And so she would bring home, you know, cactus fruit and say, oh, see if you can do something with this. And the other thing is that if you learn to cook as a very young child, everybody reinforces it. You know, everybody thinks it's so adorable that you're cooking at seven that no matter what you cook, they tell you how great it is and what a good cook you are. And then you sort of turn in, you have this confidence and you turn into a good cook eventually. And, you know, I, and certainly, you know, my parents who really didn't care what it tasted like. So I was very free to do whatever. They would eat it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you write in your book that when you got your first book contract, you stopped by your mother's to share the good news And she said, do you think we sent you to graduate school so you could write cookbooks? When are you going to do something worthwhile? Well, she said that, you know, I I think that they were very contemptuous of food. And she thought that I was throwing away my education and my talent. And, you know, I think as much as she didn't want, you know, there was this part of her that very consciously said, you know, you should do anything you want. You should do anything you want. There was this other part of her that was food. You're going to write about food. Yeah, remember, this is a time before this big food revolution when, you know, all the people who went were chefs in that first generation of American chefs, these educated kids who went through college and some of them had PhDs and they threw it over to be cooks. I mean, their parents were all devastated too. I mean, this is a time when Food was just not considered something that, you know, smart people got involved with. It was too girly. Well, not even, no, not girly. It was, you know, I mean, this is a time when, you know, chefs were people with no education who went into restaurants, you know, it was the European model. These people who went into restaurants at 12 or 13 and, you know, worked their way up from being commis. And we just wasn't considered real work. After all, remember, my mother did publish a homemaker's encyclopedia for which she also had utter contempt. 
I mean, the odd thing is that my mother, who couldn't cook, never sewed anything in her life, certainly couldn't garden, knew nothing about etiquette, published this 12-volume Homemakers Encyclopedia, <laughs> which even more hilarious is that it now has quite a cult following, this encyclopedia, <laughs> among, you know, the kind of people who homeschool their children. And they think of my mother as this domestic goddess. It's, it's... <laughs> well, I'd love to ask you a little bit more about how food writing has changed, and then we'll start taking some questions from our audience. As you said, when you first got into the area of food writing, you know, it was men and people very uh, worshipped the French method, and it was very traditional. How, what was food writing like when you first got involved, Ruth, and then how did that evolve? Well, when I started being a restaurant critic, you basically needed to know about French food, continental food, and, you know, maybe it would help to know a little bit about Italian food, but certainly ethnic restaurants were not being reviewed with any kind of seriousness. I mean, people would say, you know, well, I don't know what this food's supposed to be like when they're going to an Indian restaurant or a Chinese restaurant, but I know what I like. And it was a time when Americans had very little pride in their own food. Everything good came from Europe. And that has just changed enormously. You know, today, if you want to be a reasonable food critic, you need to have traveled a lot. You need to know about food from all over the world. And if you don't, you need to find out. You know, that kind of know-nothingness doesn't work. At I mean, you're, you're writing for a very sophisticated audience. And the other thing that's happened is, you know, the rest of the world used to think of American food as hamburgers. And now this country is one of the best places to cook, eat, have a restaurant of any place in the world. I mean, we are knowledgeable eaters. We have wonderful products. We have really Catholic appetites, which is one of the reasons why chefs like coming to America so much because, you know, Italians like Italian food and the French like French food, but we like everything. And we're very open eaters. Well, and fast forward to today, Ruth, I mean, there's a bazillion websites and bloggers and food media, magazines, TV shows. What do you think about this? Do we have too much attention to this now? I don't think you can have too much. Uh, <laughs> You know, in 1941, when Gourmet started, it was the first Epicurean magazine in America. And now, you know, you go on and then there are dozens of them. And food has is taking its rightful place in American culture. It's becoming an important part of popular culture. And the question isn't, is there too much? But why was there so little? Why did it take us so long? You know, you've got cultures all over the world who understand the importance of food. I mean, I really believe that cooking is what makes us human. You know, we are cooking animals. We cook, other animals don't. And, you know, it's just taken us a long time to understand why food is so important. How has the rise of everybody's a critic on the Internet when it comes to restaurant reviews now? I'm not talking about cooking, but restaurant reviews. Before it was, you know... A couple esteemed restaurant critics would give their opinion. Today, you know, somebody might read my opinion online. I think it's great. I sort of think that restaurant critics are becoming irrelevant. 
There are so many knowledgeable people out there writing. Uh, you know, if I if I want to find out about a restaurant, if I Google it, and you know, I can get opinions from twenty different people and make up my own mind about it. But there are people who are writing passionately, and you know, they are not people for whom the red carpet is being rolled out. You know, I had to, as the restaurant critic of the New York Times, I had to go in disguise so I could be anonymous. And now you've got thousands of anonymous people out there, you know, writing knowledgeably. I think it's great. Talk a little bit more about that. Here's a question uh, from one of our audience members. Do you ever still dress up in disguise and go out to dinner for fun? I don't. I figure after 30 years of being a restaurant critic... I've earned the right to go into a restaurant. <laughs> One of your characters, you'd come up with these characters. Sometimes it would be a very sophisticated, elegant woman. Sometimes it would be someone more closer to what we call a bag lady. You even dressed up as your mother. Uh, yeah, dressing up as my mother was one of the scarier moments of my life. Um, you know, in some ways, I think it's also another piece that led into this book because becoming my mother and it the older I get the more I look like my mother it's scarier and scarier but this was at a point when I didn't think I looked at all like my mother and I looked in the mirror and there she was looking back at me and it was like I channeled her and my mother was every restaurateur's nightmare and um, she sent everything back I mean she didn't care about food but you know, it wasn't hot enough. It wasn't what she'd ordered. It, w it wasn't cold enough. It was, and there I am. I'm my mother, and I suddenly am every restaurateur's nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> in your other books, you seem, uh, Ruth, not just interested in food, but the people who eat it, the life context of that food. What role do you think food plays in shaping our memories and triggering emotions? I sort of think it's everything. And for me, it's much more important. Everything that happens around food is the important part. You know, and what's great about coming to the table isn't what's on the table so much as the emotion around the table and the fact that it's the one time when we stop and pay attention to each other. And certainly aroma, I mean, most flavor is aroma. And aroma is the most primal sense that we have. It is actually inside your brain. Everything else has to travel to your brain. Our sense of smell is actually right there. It's very immediate. And, I mean, we all know that. You smell something that you've smelled sometimes as a child, and there you are. You're right back there again. I think it's, you know, emotionally enormously important. Here's a question that's related to that. What do you cook that holds the most memories of families and friends? This is from an audience member from Maine. Well, oddly, the one thing that my mother cooked really, really well was corn on the cob. Um, she was way ahead of her time. She had a farmer down the road, and she would put a pot of water on to boil, and then she would call him and say, go pick the corn. And she liked, at a time when everybody liked what mom called horse corn, that, you know, big yellow kernels, mom liked little white sweet kernels of corn. And so she would say to the farmer, go pick your your smallest ears. And 
she would bring it back and my mother undercooked everything and that's great with corn on the cob she would just get it hot enough to melt the butter and i and I, my brother would say the same thing neither of us ever eats an ear of corn without thinking of my mother i have a couple questions for you ruth about the recession there's been a lot written about how the recession is changing the way we eat and the way we cook and there's been a lot written, Ruth, as you know, about the trend of people returning to the kitchen, not eating out as much, and many people have written how that's a positive trend. We're spending more time together. We're back in the kitchen and so forth. I want to ask you the opposite question, though. Um, as a former restaurant reviewer, do we lose anything by not going out to eat perhaps the way we used to? No. I mean, one of the reasons that I wanted to stop being a restaurant critic was I was concerned about the fact that I saw us becoming a culture that was spending too much of our private time in public spaces. And I think restaurants are wonderful and they should be special occasion places. And uh, I mean, really good restaurants. I'm not talking about, you know, a place that you go for lunch to eat a sandwich, but I don't like the idea of people going to big deal restaurants three or four nights a week. I think they lose their power and that, that kind of great theater that a great restaurant is. Uh, I also think that uh, when we stop inviting people into our homes, we are really losing something. I mean, it is so brave to invite people to your home to take that chance that, you know, your children will misbehave or... Your meal may not be perfect, but that's how you give yourself to your friends. And I think there's something extraordinary about what's happening with people starting to entertain again and um, being home with their children for meals and houses are filling up again with the smell of cooking. I, I am thrilled about it. You have said, though, every restaurant is a theater. Even the most modest restaurant offers the opportunity to become someone else, at least for a little while. That's right. And I think, you know, it is wonderful to be able to go into a restaurant and have those few hours where you have the fantasy of being whoever you want to be, um, of being beautifully served and you know, pretending that you're rich um, or the opposite, you know, of, of doing something very casual and dressing down and having that experience. But I, again, I think that that theatrical aspect of restaurants, which is a really important part of the experience, is something to savor and cherish and not something that you want to do every day. Here's a question from our audience, Ruth, that has to do back with the themes from your book and the challenges that women of your mother's generation faced. This person wants to know, what challenges do you feel still exist for women of this generation? I, this, this is an amazing issue to me because I, I've just started talking about this book with audiences, but what I am finding is that Many, many younger women are facing this exact same kinds of struggles that my mother faced. And uh, last night, a young woman came up to me and said, I am your mother. A young woman? A young woman said that. She is a woman who has a three-year-old and a 
seven-year-old and she said, I had a giant job and I gave up that job to stay home with the kids and I'm afraid I made a terrible mistake. And I think that we are a country that has not yet figured out how to let women have careers and families. I mean, are, we really need to change social policy on this. And I really think, you know, this it is time for another strong women's movement in this country because it is too hard. One of my young staff members came up to me yesterday and said uh, she had heard me say in a reading that when you have a child and you're a working mother, you learn what guilt really is because no matter what you're doing, you're, you feel guilty. If you're home, you should be at work. If you're at work, you should be home. And it doesn't end until your children go to college. And we need to figure this out. I mean, we are a, we are a nation where women work and women should be able to work. And it shouldn't be that you feel guilty, that you are, you know, struggling all the time, that your choices are never sleeping. And there's a lot of work left to do in this. Related to that, you say in the book that your mother's, again, her most basic message to you was work. She said it's what we're made for. Again, she wanted to have that meaningful career that she herself had yearned for. What have you heard, Ruth, and again, the book is new, but what have you heard so far from women who don't work outside the home and kind of resent the implication that they're made to work and they should be outside? I haven't heard. I'm, I keep expecting to hear from those women. I haven't yet. I imagine I will. But, you know, I think if you don't want to work, that's fine. I mean, if it is satisfying, if being a homemaker makes you happy, and there are certainly women like that, there are probably men like that too, great, not a problem. I mean, the problem is for those of us, and I think we're in the majority, who want more than that. Here's a couple more questions about food, Ruth. This person says, can America's food culture ever match Europe's usefulness of food, agriculture, and society? It is so American to be so wasteful. Will we ever get it? A couple points uh, there. Well, there are a couple points there. And I, I let's go to the wastefulness, which is um, they don't waste less in Europe. Um, that's the terrible thing. I mean, we all developed countries are incredibly wasteful with food. Um, the statistics are shocking. And I have to say that my experience is that American food is getting better and better, and our products are getting better, and European food is not. It's going the other way. You know, you go to a, a farmer's market in New York City, and the, the farmers who grew that food are there. And it all comes from within 100 miles of the city, and it's local, it's seasonal. It, most of it's been grown organically. You go to a farmer's market in Paris, and what you get is food that comes from every EU nation. So you don't have the farm. I mean, unless you go to the bio, the, the one you know organic market, what you have is food that has traveled really far. And you know, two years ago, three years ago, you could get much better meat in Europe 
than you could in America. But that is changing very quickly now. Suddenly we have people who are raising wonderful, humanely raised pigs and free-range chickens. You can get good eggs. And suddenly there's, you know, grass-fed beef that's been, you know, well butchered. I mean, what's happening in this country is amazing. And um, I think it's just the beginning. Here's one last question for you, Ruth. And I have to say more than one audience member tonight asked me to ask you this. So I'm going to ask it. Where will you eat tonight? <laughs> I, I am being taken. I don't know where I'm going to. It's a surprise. <laughs> well, it's wonderful to have you. Special thanks, really, to our guest tonight, Ruth Reichel.